You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 9th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. And to all of our listeners in Sweden and Finland, a very happy Anna's Day. Who's Anna? Everyone is Anna, because we recognize everyone named Anna and marks the day to start the preparation process of the lutefisk, which which is to be consumed on Christmas Eve. Whatever the lutefisk is. What do you mean, whatever the lutefisk is? Lutefisk is that moldy fish thing. I'm looking at a picture of it now, actually. Moldy fish. That is about the most unappetizing thing I think I've seen in a long time. It looks like someone sneezed on a plate. It's rancid, right? They like... It's it's like one of those Inuit things where they bury the fish in the ground. <laughs> Inuit diets are, are made up of things that you know you have to eat because you have no other choice to eat, <laughs> eat anything else. That's right. It's on my list right after maggot cheese. <laughs> Something exciting happened here in London today. Do tell. There's a there was a big launch of a national campaign for libel reform. I was at this meeting today and. Um, you, you guys know about, of course, Simon Singh's battle here. Yes. With, uh, the, he, he's uh, being sued by the, the British Chiropractors Association for libel. And there are a lot of problems with the libel laws here, as we've gone over in the past. The, um, you're basically, you're, you're guilty until proven innocent. It costs millions of dollars and years of your life to, to fight these. So most often people settle out of court or they just self-censor. So it's a huge problem. And there's like this libel tourism thing where uh, if you have a, a single pamphlet basically that ends up somewhere in England, then anyone can sue you for it, even if both of you are outside the country. So <clears throat> it's basically in desperate need of reform. So today, uh, Sense About Science announced that uh, you know they've they've partnered with with two other organizations um, and together they are launching this campaign they're um, taking a petition tomorrow morning to Parliament basically detailing exactly what they have to do to clean up the the libel laws that's great it's about time we fixed yeah, those very crazy exciting. libel laws in, in in England indeed that was much better than Anastay by the way I think so. Oh, God. Don't make me take over the the thing of the day, Evan. Uh, Bob, you may have noticed, was missing from the introductions. He'll be joining us a little bit later. But we're going to first go on to some news items. Evan, you're going to tell us about... Anna. Aliens in Denver. <laughs> all right. You've all heard aliens of Aliens the... named Anna in yeah. Denver. <laughs> you've all heard of the Denver omelet, Correct. Of course. Of course. Well, this has nothing to do with omelets, but it does have to do with Denver. <laughs> <laughs> and we have know, we've know the name Jeff Peckman. Did you guys recognize that name at all? Oh, yeah. Remember the, an- no. the alien video in the bedroom window thing? The fame. Denver oh, alien yeah. video no. bedroom. The, the, the puppet. I thought it was the guy from the A-Team, <laughs> the <face man>. <laughs> <laughs> You could watch our takedown of that on YouTube. Go to our YouTube channel and you could see alien Who could forget video. that? This person's... Goal in life is to appear to make a fool of himself. Apparently, that and and to get a ballot initiative into the uh, city council for Denver 
and this this measure basically would be a promotion of harmonious, peaceful, mutually respectful, and beneficial coexistence between Earthlings and extraterrestrials. This is not a joke. This is not a joke. This is what Jeff Peckman has been doing for many years. He's been trying to collect enough signatures to force a vote <laughs> that the people of Denver yep. are going to are, are going to going to take, and it's going to happen. Oh man! In, two, I mean, in 2010, can we possibly be more peaceful than we already are now? We've never interacted with them. We've never harmed a single alien, as far as I know. As far as we know, I mean, right. you know. They do, they do nasty things to our cattle and sometimes you and know, to our people. farmers <laughs> so. and and general rednecks they have feelings too. So Peckman wants there to be like a panel, like a diplomatic panel to deal with relations with aliens who don't exist. <laughs> so what are they going to talk about? Yeah, right. Well, that's what that's what actually people lawmakers are in Denver are are questioning and saying what is this <laughs> basically you know um do they really have to deal with this this seems like a you know basically a waste of time which it is but hey if you get enough signatures for something you're forced the, the law states at least uh, in denver and colorado that you are, are going to have a vote on it so the people are going to have a vote he was only required to get about four thousand signatures he got a he got ten thousand two hundred people to sign People who sign anything, depending on how it's phrased, right? You know, it, it certainly is a waste. It's a it's a waste of resources. It will be a waste of money. It'll be a waste of legislature's time to to chase, you know, aliens, fairies, and other and other things. You know, other other non-existent phenomenon. This is uh, you know, this is not good. Will Richard Dreyfus be on the panel? Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> There'll be, be some celebrities that maybe that come crawling out of the woodwork he's, to support this. Plus, well, you know, he's really good with fictional aliens. It gives this fellow Jeff Peckman some form of legitimacy in the eyes of uh, well, people, the media, it? and so forth. The I problem so. is that you know the people could legitimately say that they want it, and then I don't know that it gives him legitimacy. I think that he's a crazy person, and that people are just going to like. The, the only reason why it's made news and probably the only reason he got enough signatures is because people want to laugh at him. Oh, Rebecca's right. This is a fluff piece. I mean, even in the article about it, the reporter writes, no word on whether they might be Broncos fans, you know, referring to the aliens. Of course. Clearly, this is a tongue-in-cheek piece, which is, I think, the whole media approach to this topic. What are they going to sit around and talk about? What, what they would do if they ever did encounter one, I guess. Crap in their pants. <laughs> so I was thinking I would crap in my pants first and then throw up. No. So I would say to them, hello, how are you? If, you? if you seriously consider for a moment preparing for the eventuality of uh, aliens encountering humanity, I think any preparations that were made would be instantly obsolete the moment we actually encountered aliens. Of yeah. course, yeah, because you can't predict You could not anticipate anyway. anything yeah. important, yeah. Yeah. Next news item is about bird speciation. Birds oh, and evolution. God. Doesn't get better than that. You guys and your birds. This is awesome, though. Listen to this. So this is a study <laughs> showing that... You really said that with just enough conviction to make me believe you. It's true. Bird feeders in England may be causing a species of black caps, a species of bird, to split into two different species, an actual speciation event. Now, these are migratory birds... And in the, in the winter, they migrate from the mainland of Europe to Spain, where they eat on fruits there, on Spanish fruits and olives and things like that. But a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the UK put out bird food and suet 
for birds during the, especially during the winter, you know, because there's not a lot of food available for birds, so you can maintain a much larger bird population by feeding them during the winter. Well, a subpopulation of the black caps, instead of migrating to Spain, are migrating to the UK in the winter and living off of the bird feeder food. So they've cu- they've grown to count on it. Well, absolutely. So that's what- those are the stupidest birds ever. What kind of animal migrates to England in the winter for the food? <laughs> right. That's it. of course before you know before this that wouldn't happen. But because so many people are putting out the food, then uh, it actually becomes viable. So this actually is ten percent. These ten percent of the birds that migrate to the UK, their trip back to Europe where they breed is shorter. So they arrive home during breeding season about 10 days earlier, and they all breed with each other. And then uh-huh. the other 90% returning from Spain show up you know, 10 days later, and then they breed with each other. So this, this um, temporal shifting of migration is, is a way of isolating these two populations for breeding purposes. So that's all you really need. Once you have separate breeding pools – even though they're not physically isolated, they're just sort of temporarily shifted, that's enough for them to start evolving in different directions. Okay, yeah, that is pretty cool. So they look differently? Yeah, so they have different features? That's a really good question. So you could look at them just morphologically features, and, and the, uh, the 10% of those black, cops that, black caps that migrate to the UK do have, or you can start to see some differences in, in their wings. They have uh, narrower beaks, rounder wings. But a recent study looked at their genetics, and they were able to, by looking at different you know, genetic mutations, they were able to assign birds to either one or the other group with an 85% accuracy. So they could look, take a bird, look at his gene, sequence, a couple of genes, and say, all right, this is a, a UK migrator, and they were right 85% of the time. So that means the separation is not complete, which you would, is what you would expect. I mean, you wouldn't expect... Uh, you know, total um, separation, partly because there's still going to be some interbreeding between these two populations and also because it hasn't been that much time. How much time has it been since this started? Probably about 50 years, so 30, 30 generations okay. or so. But that, that's enough to actually create identifiable subpopulations on their way to becoming different species. Isn't that neat? Wow. So speciation within the lifetime of a human being. Yeah, that's right. Pretty cool. Yeah, see, I told you it was cool. Now, yeah, what, what are our creation? What are our creationist friends saying about? They this? will say they're still birds, right? They, they will. They will well, always right. retreat. They'll to say the- if those birds evolve from birds, why are they still birds? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They always retreat to the um, micro versus macro evolution thing, which of course is a non-distinction. I mean, there's no line you can draw between. You know, "quote unquote" small changes in populations versus larger and larger and larger ones. They just bl- blend into each other. Jay, tell us why Catholics in Ireland are going blind. Well, apparently, speciation. <laughs> there master, are, master, there, something. Yeah, there's bird they re- feeding. They returned home from vacation a week later. <laughs> these bird Everyone feeders else. in England are uh, they're leaving out all these sandwiches. <laughs> and, okay, so, all right, <laughs> this is one of those things that comes up every once in a while. Where you're like, really, are people that dumb? Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, there's this person named Joe Coleman who has been no relation to Joe Bag of Donuts. No, he's been. Um, I guess he's like just like having these events happen that he's naming. Like you're saying, you know, on this date, this is going to happen, and and you know, they're seeing sightings of the Mother Mary, and he like says to people, it's going to happen on this date and at this time, and people show up, and he had a couple of events happen 
in October of this year, and he got about 10,000 people to show up, and um, and they had a, a a mass delusion on par with uh, with what happened in Portugal. The Lady of Fatima. Yep. So the people are, are claiming that they see the Virgin Mary, <laughs> that they see the sun shimmering, and that the sun is changing color and it's dancing in the sky. A lot of people were quoted as saying that, which is coincidentally what happens. What, this is what you see, like the, the shifting of colors and the, the, that type of activity happens when you get damaged from staring into the sun. Surprise. Amazingly yeah. enough. Huh. <laughs> so I get there's a doctor in in Ireland who um, who noticed a spike in people that have solar retinopathy, which is damage to your to your retina and uh, the macula, which is in the back of your eye, specifically from looking at the sun. Yeah, specifically from looking at the sun. So I guess he figured out that something was going on, and he, he, from talking to his patients, he found out that you know that there's a lot of people that are claiming eye you know eyesight damage from doing this, and you know, and he's huh. he's concerned about. You know, a public health hazard, and he wants to let people know what's going on. But you know, the, the, these people are all standing there, like in, a, in one place, like looking up at the sky and staring at the sun until they damage their eyesight. I guess you could call that uh, blind faith, right? <laughs> well, if you do it long enough, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, I wonder how that goes, though, with the with the people. Like, I mean, presumably they don't think that their eyes are going to be damaged. Do they understand the basic concept of looking at the sun and that it damages your eyes? Or do they believe that the Lord is protecting them in this instance? And then, you know, what happens when they finally go to the doctor for this? Like, <laughs> doctor, um, I think I'm blind. Well, what could have brought that on? Oh, I don't, I don't know. It was weird. I mean, one minute I'm staring at the sun and the next minute I'm blind. Like... Are they surprised? I don't know. It's a good question, Rebecca. Who knows what they really think or how they're justifying it? But the bottom line is, regardless of what their claims are, they're standing, they're looking up into the sky, they're looking into the sun, they're damaging their eyes, and that's a fact. That's what's taking place. Any of their claims are irrelevant to that fact. You know, you can also see visions if you stick your head underwater for three minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But think about how irresponsible it is for this guy um, to be... Encouraging people yeah. to, to be doing this, yeah. to, just to, as a cheap trick to create the appearance of something miraculous to support his own career, if you will. What does he sell? Walking canes? <laughs> yeah, he's got vendors make, that make are there, killing. that are there afterwards that sell those big black, uh, you know, like sunglasses. <laughs> but it, 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 German it, shepherds. <laughs> it is incredible, though, how huge uh, within certain elements of the Catholic Church. The alleged you know, miracle um, at Fatima is Fatima. Uh, it's actually Fatima. It's yeah, accents on the A. According to whom? Wikipedia. Get up, Fatima. Fatima. I've always heard it pronounced Fatima. Fatima. By... Fatima. Well, you know, Camper Van Beethoven pronounces it Fatima. Ooh. Therefore, that's a musician, by the way, guys. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, can't, you, know, I mean, you can't argue with Wikipedia, okay? <laughs> Steve, uh, I think Camper Van Beethoven trumps Wikipedia. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You know, the, Look the, it up. The Lady of Fatima <laughs> phenomenon has has been something that Steve and I have talked about many, many times. It, it really is huge for some people. To them, it's an ironclad miracle. Seventy thousand people gathered um, at that location because there was a promise of a miracle, 
And, you know, the, the clouds parted, the sun came out, it danced around, there were, you know, m- lots of colors, people were magically dried of the rain, you know, from, <laughs> from having been wet from the rain. Of course, really, re- the reports the are hugely variable. There's no consistent report. And now, of course, the, the more time we get away from this event, this is in 1917 in Portugal, the story evolves and becomes more and more, you know, clean and and miraculous um, to the point that it's, you know, it might as well be the, the loaves and fishes in the Bible. You know what I mean? It's the same, you can see sort of sort of modern miracle. You could see how it evolves over time. But we're close enough to it that investigators can actually like interview actual people who were there. At least in our lifetime, investigators have looked at this when people were st- you know, still alive who were at that at that event, and you know we can get close enough to it to to make some kind of a judgment about it. You'd think that people would see this as a pretty damning fact. The fact that um, miracles get more miraculous the further back in time you go. Mm-hmm. So these days, miracles kind of suck. But ten years ago, <laughs> they were okay, and you know. 80 years ago, they were, they, were, they were pretty good, but, you know, like 2,000 years ago, man. Man, you could raise you people from the dead, yeah. walk on water. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> but, but isn't it interesting have, to think that that many people in one location could have a shared illusion? Well, again, it wasn't everyone. It was, it was lots of inconsistencies. But, um, yeah, but it's also the fact that the, the people who, went, who made that pilgrimage to go there wanted to see a miracle. Yes. And if the person next to you says, I see it, you know, there's, that creates a lot of pressure on you to say, yes, I see it too. Otherwise, right. what, you don't have enough faith or there's, you're not privileged or something wrong with you. And then, the, you know, it's, it's part of it is, could just be the, the effect of, of being in a crowd. And part of it also is suggestibility. Mm-hmm. But also there's an actual physical illusion involved that was more than enough to spark the then, you know, mass delusion or the crowd effect among highly you know faithful and anticipating people right yeah i mean the fact is if they stared into the sun long enough they're going to see something uh so we're coming up on some astronomy news items so bob is joining us now bob better late than never hey hey everybody (laughs) what's up bob (laughs) and at the same time we are being joined by the bad astronomer phil plate phil welcome back to the skeptics guide hey hey (laughs) <laughs> Phil, what's up? I feel like I hey, always Phil. have to do that when you introduce me. Is that right? <laughs> I heartily endorse this product and or event. I can't do Crusty the Clown at all. It's off, know. Right, you didn't have to actually say that. We got that. You like Mr. Spockle? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Phil, before we get to the uh, Mars and Uranus news items, it, the JRIF officially announced that you would be stepping down as president and DJ Grothy will, will be taking your place. We're going to be interviewing DJ in January, uh, but apparently you were stepping down because you're moving on to bigger and better things. So tell us what you can about that. I don't know if I'd say either bigger or better. It's different. This was a, a, a pretty tough decision and a, a long time coming. I've been pursuing various you know television projects for a long time, and they've always sort of amounted to the the talking head where they they stick me in front of a telescope with a a, a bright light in my face and say, so tell me about gamma ray bursts. And I'll say, you know, adjectives like titanic and vast and destructive. And then they they, they thank me and and there you go. But in fact, I've been looking to do more than that for a while. And um, all I can say is that uh, some, some things that I've been working on for a while are starting to come to fruition. And officially, all I can really say is that I'm pursuing television opportunities. Mm-hmm. 
Gotcha. That's, that's coming from the top. That's coming from, in fact, President Obama. So I can't say anymore. Oh, oh awesome. Oh, oh. It's not, it's <laughs> it sounds too much. exciting. Crap. Yeah, it is exciting, and I'm, 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 really, I'm really fired up about it. I mean, you got to understand that in the life of a, a you know, blogging, naked, dork skeptic like me, you know, sitting in, in my office wearing flannel PJs and, and hammering away at the keyboard, there are steps in your life that are major steps, you know, writing a book and, and doing that sort of thing. And, and certainly being president of, of any organization, let alone something with international recognition like the JREF, is a major, major monumental thing. And I, 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 of course, so of course it makes me sound really great. And I don't mean it that way. I mean that that's just such a huge thing in my life that the only thing that could, could really tear me away from it would be something I'd been working on for even longer. Mm-hmm. So this was, oh, this was sleepless nights pacing, uh, you know, long discussions with my wife, all sorts of things. But in the end, this is, this is just something I have to go for. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds exciting, and you know, obviously, we, we wish you the best. I hope this all comes to fruition. And just so, in case there's speculation on the part of our listeners, this is something completely separate from the skeptologist, right? Right. And, yeah, I figured you might bring that up. It's it, it didn't occur to me actually when I made the announcement that people might think that, and then I was kind of you know face palming myself, like, of course, you dumb dumb. <laughs> uh, but no, it's not skeptologist, which is uh, you know I, I like that show. I love the concept and everybody working on it, and uh, I'm really hoping that it does well. I still support it, and I'll do what I can to get that show on the air. But this is not that. Yeah, and and I'll just say. Um, again, just because I'm sure people are curious, that project is still moving forward. Brian Dunning and Ryan Johnson are working very hard. There's really no progress at this point to report. It's still, they're just going from one option to the next. But they are still working very hard to make that a reality. And we still have hope that it will one day see, you know, see the light of day, as it were. But you're working on something else entirely parallel to that. So it's, you know, we have to have as many irons in the fire as we can and, and hope that w- something hits, right? I mean, we just we can't put all of our eggs in one basket. Or burns, yeah. Right. So, <laughs> Phil, what do, you, what do you know about Russian rockets? What do I know about Russian rockets? I know that you shouldn't rush a rocket. It's a very delicate process, and you have to develop it slowly. Um, gee, do you, you, mean, you mean Norway? You mean the... Uh, Transdimensional porthole that was opened up by the Large Hadron Collider. <laughs> yeah. Just in time for Obama's visit. Coincidence? Coincidence? Yeah. This this is the kind of thing I could have predicted. This if somebody had, if somebody had asked me, it's like the one day next week when you're going to be exhausted and you're going to wake up an hour and a half late, and I'll say, yeah, that's that's the day a Russian rocket's going to spin out of control over Norway and it's going to be reported all over the internet because that's my luck. I seem to always miss these kind of things. So yeah, I woke up late. I come downstairs with my coffee, and I look at my email, and there's like a dozen emails. What's this? And, you know, for those of you who haven't noticed, for the, for the two of you who evidently don't have Internet access, and, and over Norway, over northern Norway, on uh, Wednesday morning, I believe it was, local time, there was a giant white spiral that appeared in the sky and with like this blue line of spirals heading right towards the center of it. And this thing was, you know, I saw the picture of it and it looked like, you know, like a, like a drawing of a spiral galaxy in the sky. It looked like it just totally photoshopped. And that was my first thought, like fake. And then I saw another picture and from another location. And then I saw the video and I thought, oh, it's not Photoshop. This is video. Yeah, and I saw the video act- first, and it's, cl- it's clearly real. It's beautiful, oh. actually. It's very beautiful. Yeah, and I mean, I, even even when I saw the video, I wasn't expecting to see the spiral rotating. I thought you'd see something very slow, but in fact, no. This thing looks like uh, you know a sprinkler head in the sky that's that, that's shooting out water in spirals. Just astonishing. 
so when I saw the video and, and the spiral is actually moving and I thought, wow, this is, you know, whatever this is, it must be real. And then after about two seconds of thought, I thought, well, it's, it's a, it's a booster. It must be some sort of rocket that's spinning probably out of control and spewing some sort of material out into space. And I, I'm, I'm not sure about all the details and the details are still coming out as we're talking, but it appears to have been a Russian rocket mm-hmm. and it was, it was spinning and, and the blue spiral is a perspective effect as this thing is, is moving across the sky and then it just burst and all this stuff started spinning out. And the, the creepy thing, and I mean the thing that really kind of threw me was when it stops, there's the, the center of the disc starts to expand leaving a black circle in the middle. You, ju- you just have to see the video. It's impossible to explain. And I thought that's weird and then I realized, oh, it really is a sprinkler effect. If you were to hover over a sprinkler shooting out water and you would see these spirals expanding outwards. And that's just an illusion. The, the water's not really moving in a spiral. It's just because the sprinkler is spinning. Yeah. But if you cut the sprinkler off, the spirals will, will look like they're disappearing from the center and move outward. Mm. Exactly. And that, yeah. That's exactly what you're seeing here. So, of course, I wrote about this, put it on my blog, and all of the UFO enthusiasts, I will phrase it that way quite carefully, uh, oozed out of the woodwork and are saying, you must be an idiot to think this is a rocket. It's clearly a trans-dimensional wormhole portal from the aliens from the future using yeah. a large hadron collider to drop baguettes on the on the yeah. LHC <laughs> and short it out and <laughs> right. So it's 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 frustrating and yet amusing listening to this when it's pretty clear what happened. Yeah, I mean, once you what you have in your mind the the image of a rocket. To wrote spinning out of control, spewing things out to the side. It makes perfect visual sense what you're looking at, and also you could see the the trail coming up from you know beyond the horizon up into the sky, just like you would expect a rocket to look like. It's not that it's it's it's, it's a little unusual and it's beautiful, but it's really not that much of a mystery. Yeah. And then of course Russia it admits that that they uh, had launched a rocket in that area um, that went out of, that went awry that went out of control. Apparently, it was launched from a submarine, is what we're being told at this point in time. So this is one of those, you know, within 24 hours, the, the news cycle is so fast now. It's like within 24 hours, mystery solved. It's almost a little uh, disappointing because the, uh, the cranks don't have as much time as they used to to hang themselves, you know, by making these ridiculous analyses before we get the answer as to what it, what it most likely is. I mean, they, 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 make a, they do a good job within the short time that they have, but they really get caught off, cut off too quickly before they can embarrass themselves more thoroughly. Oh, and in fact, this, this is another mark against them, because as I've been saying all along, with the advent of better video, better cameras, and everybody's got a camera on them now, where are the UFOs? Exactly. And, and I've been predicting for a long time that the more of these things we see, the more people are going to realize that that the vast majority of reported UFOs are just things like this that happen, and that you know this particular event isn't all that common, but lots of other things are mistaken for UFOs, and we see pictures of them all the time. Yeah, I, I've made that same point. Like you see, you see video of rare weather events, you know, a tornado ripping through a city. Everyone, when something unusual happens, people whip out videos now. So there really is no excuse if we were being visited by by alien spacecraft that we wouldn't also be having more compelling video of the same things. But but they're just not showing up. Even more bizarre than the UFO community is the David Ick conspiracy community. Rather than saying that this was an alien spacecraft, they're saying this was some kind of projection onto the sky. And this is a government conspiracy. This is part of, again, their plan to, to enact a one-world government. 
Well, that's just silly because clearly <laughs> what's going on is the lizard overlords are sending that information out to make these UFO people look really silly so that you don't suspect, <laughs> in fact, that Obama is a, is a what is it, a, a gray reptilian lizard, lizardoid? What are the, what are the phrases? Sleestack, I think. It's silly. Um, they're gorn. But but even technically, it's silly. I mean, what what actually would you be projecting that image off of? What the sky or the, the rocket what? exhaust, the clouds, or oh, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, you know, right. if they, if they had the technology to project anything on the sky, I think we'd be seeing Coca Cola and not spirals. <laughs> Obey, consume, submit. So did, did the Russian government release any information like how high up it was and? You know, any details like that? I haven't heard anything. I would doubt that. I've read a couple articles on it. I doubt, I didn't see any information like that. I would tend to doubt that they would release details like that. That's, that's a very sensitive subject for them. These missiles, this is like the eighth failure out of 12 attempts. Uh, I'm just wondering how big that, that circle actually was. Huge. It was seen over the entire country of yeah. Norway, apparently. Yeah, it must have been wow. many miles across. It'd be interesting yeah. to know. I, it, if the rocket experts can look at it, of course, and, and say, it. well, if, if we know that this is a leak versus an actual booster spinning it, it's, there were, it's actually a double-armed spiral, which is interesting. So you know, what, was this actually two boosters or two leaks or two engines? Yeah. I don't really understand it. So if you can know what was actually spewing out this material, you have an exhaust velocity. And we know how quickly those spirals were expanding, so you can figure out how high up it was. There's actually a lot you can tell just by looking at the video. If you know a little bit about this, you can extrapolate the rest. But I haven't heard anything, so I don't know. What strikes me about it, Phil, what do you think of this? What strikes me about that that video is how symmetrical it is, which would make me think that that was kind of like a 90-degree angle viewing. Well, I think, I think at that point the booster was either headed right towards or right away from where most people right. were. So if it were tilted more or, or lower down on the horizon, I'd have to think about this carefully. 3D spherical yeah. geometry can be a little hard on the brain. But I, I think it must have been heading right away or right, right toward the camera, and that's why the spiral looks so beautifully circular. And it right. had to be high enough up that the, the atmosphere was not a big deal. So it must have been at least, you know, 20 or 30 miles up or else the spiral would have been squished on one side. So that that right away gives you an indication of what's going on. And that's the other thing that's killing me on the comments on my blog and other ones are people saying, oh, that spiral's too perfect. It couldn't possibly have been a rocket booster. You know, obviously, yes. So through, you know, your many years of experience as a rocket scientist, you're assuming it's a portal to another dimension and not a rocket. Come on. Come on. (laughs) Well, it's also the thing that people assume that some simple process can't produce perfect geometry, like the like the perfect the perfect circles in uh, crop circles. Yeah, exactly. You how could know. how could a human make a perfect circle? A, a stick and a piece of a rope. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the compass effect. You know, simple processes can can create uh, regular or or very symmetrical geometrical shapes. You know, there's no real big mystery to that. Well, look at gravity creates perfect spheres. Yes. Wow. How can that be? Mm. Exactly. Um, let's go on to a couple of other of our planetary news items. Uh, we were chatting uh, before we started recording about Uranus. Now, Uranus is interesting in that it's tilted very, very far on its side in terms of its uh, axis of rotation. And the leading hypothesis as to how it got there was that back in the early days of the solar system, something uh, Earth-sized must have smashed into it and knocked it on its side. But now uh, some astronomers have published a paper where they're coming up with an alternate hypothesis, a, a different way in which 
Uranus could have gotten over onto its side. So can you give us a summary of that, Phil? Yeah, it, Uranus is, is one of actually two or three planets, depending on whether you call Pluto a planet or not, that seems to, to be spinning at a funny angle. Jupiter spins, for example, tilted three degrees to the plane of its orbit. If, if the solar system is like, a, like a, a, a giant CD, then Jupiter is almost exactly perpendicular to that. And the Earth, is, as you know, is tilted about 23.5 degrees, something like that. And all the planets are tilted a little bit. Uh, Venus actually spins backwards, so we think it's actually tilted 100, like 180 degrees over. Uranus, mm. huh. Uranus is on its side. It's got a 97 or 98 degree tilt. So it's actually flipped a little bit more than, than perpendicular to its orbit. And the question is, how did that happen? Well, the, the old idea, and, and this is not disproven at all, but, but the, the working idea is that something huge whacked into it at an angle and knocked it over. And we think that's how the moon formed around the Earth, that something the size of Mars slammed into the Earth at a grazing angle, knocked it over a little bit, and then and formed the moon. Could something like this have happened to Uranus? Well, yeah, it could have, but there are problems with this, and this has always bugged me ever since I first heard about this. One is that uh, you would expect the moons to still be orbiting. If if something hit this thing and knocked it over, you wouldn't expect the moons to be orbiting perfectly in Uranus's equator, and yet they are. Um, You would expect a huge amount of material would have gotten blasted out into space, and yet we don't see that. So, you know, what's going on? To clarify, so the moons would all be in that same tilted-over orbit, right? The whole Uranus system would be tilted over. Well, these moons would have probably formed in that event. You're saying that if it was, the impact theory should have left us some moons in the plane of the solar system rather than in the tilted plane of Uranus. It's, it's unclear to me, and, and I'm not an expert in, in sort of these sort of planetary dynamics, but from reading the paper and reading what I've, what I've seen, that the moons that we see, you know, uh, Triton and, and Oberon, these other moons of Uranus, should not have uh, – wait a minute, Triton and Oberon, is that right? Yeah, Nereid is Neptune. I have to make sure I have my moons straight here. But the moons of Uranus should actually not be uh, tilted with it, and yet they are. So something else must have happened here. And it's, it's just it's, – it's all very complicated, but this new idea is, actually combines two things. And one is that a long time ago, Uranus had a much larger moon than it has now. And it would have had to have been a significant fraction, more than 1% of the planet's mass, which is a lot. Uranus is a big planet. It's an ice giant, so it's much, it's much more massive than the Earth. And it turns out that for, for different distances from Uranus itself, it has different effects on the planet. Now, if you take a top – and uh, like a kid's toy, a top or a gyroscope, and you poke it, it'll start to wobble. The, the axis will, will, will make a little circle. That's called precession. And the Earth does this. It has precession of the Earth's axis, and it takes about 26,000 years to make a complete circle. And, and that has all sorts of effects on our seasons and, and the length of the year and all that kind of stuff. Well, all planets do this. All spinning objects do this. If they have a force on them and they're spinning. Well, Uranus has this precession as well. And so what they're thinking, and from what I'm, what I'm reading in the paper about this, is that for a, the right mass and the right distance for this old moon, it can sort of pump up that precession and make it much larger and sort of tilt the planet over. And it's, it's weird and, and complicated, and I'm not sure I understand all the details. I'll be completely honest here. But that's sort of what's happening. If, if you're on a swing, a kid's swing, and you pump your legs at the right frequency, you can make yourself swing faster and faster. And I think that's what's going on here. So this moon actually sort of pushed Uranus over on its side. Well, then the next question is, well, where's this moon? It had to have been huge. I mean, we're talking about something more massive, well, not as massive as the Earth, but something pretty big. Where'd it go? Uranus does not have any moons anywhere near that size. 
Well, it turns out that the four outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, didn't start at their present positions. They've moved around. As uh, the solar system was forming and as their gravity interacted with each other, I believe Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune moved in and Jupiter moved out. I might have that backwards. Again, this is one of those kind of things you have to you have to have uh, right at the tip of your fingertips or, or, or possibly... I, how can something not be at the tip of your fingertips? Am I? Is this thing on? Hello, hello. Um, Speaking of which, this. Phil, just to, just to uh, clarify what you were saying before, Triton is a moon of Neptune. Neptune. Oh, the, Uranus is Titania and Oberon. Titania and Oberon. Titania, Thank yes. you. Of course it is because uh, Neptune and his and his trident. So yes, I should have exactly. should have thought of that. It's probably I don't know if that has anything to do with each other, but I should have thought of that. Well, the point here is that the planets moved around a lot, and there's this idea that they started in much different positions, and it's possible that some of them even swapped places. And when that happens, that can affect the orbits of the moons, and it's completely plausible that a moon with some fraction of Uranus's mass that orbited 50 times Uranus's radius out from the planet itself got ejected by the gravity of, of Saturn or Neptune or Jupiter, and it's just gone. Mm-hmm. It, it seems unlikely to me. I mean, you're, you're asking for two things here. You're asking for the presence of a moon that we don't see, and then you're asking for it to be ejected. Neither of these is implausible. Both of them can happen. Uh, it just seems that you're asking for two things instead of one. On the other hand, you know, asking for a giant collision is is not easy either because it it, it begs it. Well, it's a beg the question, or does it? Uh, you see, how confused can I be in one night? Uh, it actually, it actually <laughs> it prompts raises the question. The question. Yeah, yeah it, it, it prompts the question, what happened to this thing? What happened to all the other effects that it would have given? So we have you know, a couple of hypotheses. Uh, they have, there's evidence for, for both of them, and there's evidence against both of them. And the question is, you know, which is going to win in the end? And that's going to take more observations and more understanding of the way the solar system works. Did the paper mention any specific test, any future prediction that would help us distinguish between the impact hypothesis and the precession tilt hypothesis? Not that I saw. I guess what you could look for would be some object uh, out in maybe the, the Kuiper Belt or, or, or someplace out in that area that could have come from Uranus and have been ejected. Yeah. And it, you know, if we find something like that, and, and who knows, it's that area of the solar system, we've only mapped a tiny, tiny fraction of the objects in it. And you can have objects in there that are much larger than, say, Pluto, uh, that are hard to find because they could be dark, not very reflective. So they could be lurking out there, and we just haven't found them yet. And it's entirely within the realm of possibility that within, you know, 100 years or, or less, we find some giant object out there that's that's fairly dark. And when they trace its orbit back, it, it, it clearly was ejected from Uranus. That would be cool. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Th- th- this was mainly done with computer modeling, right? Yeah. They, they basically took, uh, took the, the four planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. They stuck uh, different types of moons orbiting, orbiting Uranus and then let these things move around. And in some of them, you know, Neptune was ejected from the solar system. and some of them, the moon stayed around Uranus. So they rejected all of those scenarios and kept the ones where – in the end, the planets ended up in the right order, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and this moon was ejected. And they found that it was plausible that this thing could have happened. And, you know, it's interesting. There aren't that many scenarios out of the, all the possible ones where it could have happened. But they didn't find you know, zero cases. They found uh, a couple of dozen, I believe, that, that ended up with something like this. Yeah, out so, of like 10,000 or something to begin with. Yeah, they started with a lot. But you know, it, it's the lottery fallacy. Somebody's got to win. 
So yeah. if you pick something really weird, some weird thing in the solar system, and you start running models for it, it's only weird when you're looking at it now. When the solar system started, you know, some sort of weird configuration was probably inevitable. And and you know, look at look at Pluto. Pluto's in this orbit that uh, keeps it always away from Neptune. It's always it, it, even though the orbits cross, the orbital paths cross. When Neptune is there. Pluto is always really far away, or when Pluto is there, Neptune's always really far away. So over all this time, they never interact, and never it, Pluto never gets ejected. And you might look at that and say, wow, how special it is that Pluto's in this really cool orbit. And the answer is, well, there were probably a million things when the solar system started uh, orbiting somewhere uh-huh. near Pluto, but Pluto is the winner. It's the one that was in the right orbit to keep it from being ejected. So it's the one we see now. Right, so it's actually it's partly the lotto fallacy in that whatever configuration we have now was inherently unlikely, but there were millions of unlikely configurations. This is just the one that happens to be. But it's also that there was some selection going on. It's not purely random. Those orbits that were stable, those planets that were in orbits that would not cause them to get ejected are the ones that were, are still here. Exactly. Yeah. It's the puddle saying how remarkable it is that I fit the, 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 the pothole that I'm in. <laughs> One other quick astronomy follow-up. We, we've discussed previously on our show about uh, methane on Mars. <laughs> and, exactly. Bob. <laughs> and <laughs> the fact that uh, methane is a very reactive gas. It wouldn't hang around for very long. So if we're seeing a lot of methane in the atmosphere of Mars, it must be being created by something or replenished in some way. Or released in some way. Yeah, so it's, it's coming from somewhere. It's being replenished in the atmosphere by some mechanism. It's either geologic or it's biological or it's being deposited on Mars. And recently scientists have done an experiment on the possibility that it's being deposited there by meteors, which turns out not to be a likely case, right? Yeah, this is pretty cool. Like you said, methane is highly reactive. It's it's an organic. Well, it, it's it's a very simple compound. It's just one carbon atom and four hydrogen atoms. And under almost any circumstances, when methane bumps into something, it, it reacts. And so it's it's not easy to keep around for a long period of time. And on Mars, very sensitive measurements have shown it waxing and waning with time over over the Martian seasons, basically. So clearly, something must be generating it, and then it's it's going away. The most obvious thing would be some sort of geologic activity. We see uh, all sorts of things changing on Mars with the seasons as far as uh, the, the water ice and the carbon dioxide ice coming, coming and going. But maybe, maybe there's some geologic process which is spewing out methane. Or maybe it's coming from outer space. Or like you said, maybe it's biological. We would all love very much for this to be biological, for there right. to be little, little critters uh, eating something and then, and then spewing out methane. But you don't want to just jump to that conclusion. You really have to look at everything else. So one idea is that meteors coming in and burning up in, in Mars's very thin atmosphere may be generating this methane. Now, I have, I have some issues with this right away because we see the methane coming and going, and you don't expect to see that happening that way. You expect to see sort of a constant replenishment on average as meteors burn up in, in the Martian atmosphere. Well... What these guys did is they said, well, let's see. Let's take some meteors. We, we have meteors on Earth, and, and they're representative of what is out there in space burning up over all the planets. And let's heat them up to meteoric, uh, meteoric temperatures. We, you know, we have the Murchison meteorite, which is, which is high in carbon, for example. And let's, we, we know that there are things out there in space just like this. Let's stick it in a chamber. Let's burn it up and see what we get out of it. And what happened was is that knowing sort of the rates of meteoric bombardment of Mars – 
the amount of methane you can produce from meteorites coming in is only about 10 kilograms every year. That's just 20 pounds. And 20 pounds of methane is nothing. It looks like the methane levels you need are hundreds of tons, like yeah. 200 tons on average. And they're generating 20 pounds through meteoric bombardment. So clearly that is not where this methane is coming from. Yeah, it's orders of magnitude too little methane to account for that. So that leaves us with geologic or biological, right? I guess so. I, there's one thing I, I, I was not happy with, but these guys are smarter than I am, so I assume it, it doesn't play into it. They burned up these meteorites that they found on Earth. They, they stuck them in uh, a helium chamber and then heated them up and, and then read off uh, using infrared spectroscopy. You can read what kind of elements are, are being or what kind of molecules are being generated. And the Martian atmosphere is actually carbon dioxide, and they didn't, they didn't use carbon dioxide in their test. I don't know if that makes any difference. I doubt it or else they would have done it. Maybe maybe the, the way they measure the amounts of elements and, and molecules created, they have to do it in helium to be able to get a clean signal. But since the Martian atmosphere is carbon dioxide and they were burning up carbon-based meteorites, maybe it just doesn't make any difference. Yeah. And, and either way, I mean, you're, you're comparing 20 pounds to, you know, what is that, uh, uh, 40,000 pounds or something like that. So yeah. it's, it's pretty clear, excuse me, 400,000, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, that, that that's not what they're getting. It's just not coming from meteorites. Yeah, it's just not. So what time. is it? And it, it appears that it's not coming from volcanic activity, or else we would see other types of uh, other types of molecules, other types of compounds in the Martian atmosphere that we do not see. If it's geologic, it must be a very low order uh, vents or something like that. But even that, we should be able to see other things being spewed up in the atmosphere. And so a lot of people are getting pretty excited that this might be biological. I don't know. Yeah, but I'd like to see you know you know Holmes is the one who said when you eliminate all possibilities, whatever remains, however silly, must be what's going on. And I think that's not true. That's that's sort of a god of the gaps. You you really have to eliminate everything. And nature is smarter than we are, and it might have come up with some other way of, ma of making methane that we haven't thought of. Right, exactly. Yeah, that whatever remains is the key. When you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be true. But that assumes you know everything that fits into the whatever remains category. Precisely. But, you, oh, you, but in science, we always have to include the unknown, the things that – the processes that we may not just be aware of yet. Otherwise, you, you're right. You get to an argument from ignorance. And, and you don't want to not be excited. If we're seeing methane and we've eliminated everything we can think of except biological activity, yeah. then, then yeah. you know, hey, let's take a closer look at biological activity. But It's worth a probe. Yeah, but you can't, you can't jump to it is biological activity until you have positive evidence for it, not negative evidence against it. Exactly. So, it, yeah, I think this is really compelling evidence for why we need to send a probe to Mars that's capable of detecting possible biological activity. Well, that's just it, Steve. I, I think I, I remember reading somewhere that it would to really, really figure this out, you got to get footprints on Mars. You need to get people up there. Yeah, that's some people have said that that a probe can only get you just so far, and you just you got to really get people on there with, with the equipment. And I, and I hope that's not true because I don't think we're going to be on Mars for quite a while. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's hard to get to Mars. There's just enough atmosphere that makes just using a rocket to land hard and too much atmosphere uh, or, or not, enough, not enough to use a parachute easily. You need huge parachutes that are hard and, and too much atmosphere just to use a rocket. And so putting massive payloads on Mars is really difficult. And you're kind of limited with the amount of science you can put on Mars in a robot. You can try to make it as... as as versatile as possible, but it's just not going to be as versatile as sending a human with a chemistry set. It, when you look at Viking, which landed on, on Mars in the, in the late 70s, 
what I've been reading is that if it had dug down just a few inches more, it would have found water ice. And that, oh. that was one of the things it was trying to do. And there's probably water ice all over the place buried underneath the sand and dust. It just didn't dig deep enough. And it, it, you know, they didn't think of that. Whereas a human would have dug down four inches and God, you know, damn it, and we dig deeper and bang, ice. Yeah, we would have known exactly. about it a lot earlier. The, the cost makes it prohibitive, right? Well, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. Sending a, you can send a, a five or six ton or, you know, even a few hundred kilograms to Mars. Uh, but that's uh, in the form of a robot or a rover or something like that. But that's not even, you know, the 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 amount of food you have to send to Mars for, yeah, for right. to support one human. So that's that's an issue, and you need air and water and and all that stuff. Well, I guess you don't need water; you can get it there. We need a, a virtual presence on Mars. We need a robot that somebody can operate remotely. But then there's that whole the delay delay <laughs> issue, yeah. But then that's, that's not going to get to Mars. It's going to crash back on Earth, and it's going to take over the planet. And you, you know, <laughs> the or nanotechnology. I mean, if the economy stays the way that it is, that'll probably come first. Uh, yeah, right. Unfortunately, probably too far off to predict at this point. Well, this is Skeptic's Guide, so it's not just nanotechnology. It's also going to need improvements in solar cells and batteries as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, Phil, those freaking news items keep coming out, you know? It's well, true. Yeah. Those tantalizing news items. Another My, breakthrough. There's something yeah. just a little bit raw off with it. <laughs> My buddy is getting a huge solar rig. It looks like he's going to definitely get a big solar rig at his house. And and it looks really cool. He doesn't have to pay a dime. They install everything, and he just starts paying the monthly fee, and it's going to cover 33% of his electricity on average every year. It'll be paid off like in, I don't know, 15 years or so. Is he getting a government subsidy for it? Yeah, yeah. all that stuff is applying. All that stuff is, is going through it, and yeah. uh, he's, it's really cool. I mean, it's a big monstrosity. It's a big thing, and I keep asking him, well, you know, what's going to happen in five or ten years when the technology is like two orders of magnitude better? And uh, and, and they've got answers to even those those uh, responses because the technology that he's licensing has is, 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 uh, been around for a long time. They know it's going to work for 20 years and all this stuff. Even if the technology gets a lot better, a lot of this, a lot of this laboratory stuff looks cool, but it hasn't been tested for fifteen or twenty years. Who knows? It, you know what kind of maintenance you would need for that? But you uh, had to say it's exciting, solar, Phil, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, look, at some point you got to fish or cut bait, right? You yeah. got to make that choice, and yeah. it's like it's like buying a, a new digital camera. That's the hardest decision you'll ever make yeah. because you know they're always getting better. And the same with solar panels. At some point, they're good enough. You know, if the technology is good enough and the price is right, yeah. And where I live in Boulder. We have we have sunny days like it's some crazy amount like three hundred days out of the year. So solar technology here, when you drive around my neighborhood, yes. you see people with photovoltaic cells as well as just the thermal ones that heat water. They're everywhere. I wish I had them. Cool, um, but you know I I just can't tap into that socialist uh, government teat the way yeah. your friend can. I suppose yeah. you know, that creeping socialism's everywhere, and it's how awful it is that he's getting energy for almost free. <laughs> well, the, the, when you get to the point where the monthly fee you know that you're paying to to pay off the solar equipment is equal to the reduction in your electric bill then it's basically free right right and then after it gets paid off then it's actually money in your pocket uh, um, there are other fees too there's like there's a lifespan to the solar panels and you have to pay like a a, a recycling fee with them or something like that but, but yeah there's there are hidden costs but i i agree with you in general once you take all that together uh, you know that's great, and and plus the fact is that if you live in an area that's prone to power outages, yeah, mm-hmm. and that seems to be almost everywhere. 
especially when the next big solar flare in 2012 wipes out our power grid. <laughs> yeah, right. So maybe we're getting to the point where in like Arizona, like bright parts of the country, yeah. it's starting to get cost effective. Not so much in Connecticut at this point, but uh, it is a rapid increase in the technology. So maybe we'll cross that threshold soon. It'd be, I guess you could, you know, the threshold will be crossed in different parts of the country at different times, depending on climate. That's a, that's a good point. That's, I hadn't thought of that. That's a really good point. Unless they have such an amazing, huge breakthrough that it's effective for everybody. Yeah, right? but those never happen. <laughs> yeah, oh, but I can still hope. As we know, the sun is getting brighter, causing global warming. So that's clearly, right. That's true. Clearly, that's, that's better, too. Well, Phil, it's always a blast to have you on the show. Hey, thanks. I'm always, uh, always happy to be on here. And uh, when you can talk to us in more detail about your TV opportunity, I'm sure we'll get you back on to talk about that too. Okay, I'll spill the beans. I'm doing a I'm doing a talk show with the with Doctor Phil. Oh, awesome! And it's called uh, Bitter Phils, or uh, <laughs> Doctor Phils. We'll get your fills, or I don't will Doctor Phils or the Doctor's Phil. Doctor's Phil. There you go. <laughs> doctor's Phil. <laughs> hey, Doctor's Phil. All right, Phil. Take care. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. See, Phil. Bye, Phil. Well, let's move on to your questions and email. Next question comes from Will M. And Will writes, I noticed this poster, he attaches a poster, a few months ago in Toronto. They claim to be able to cure cancer, HIV, and damn near everything else. Shouldn't this be illegal? Now, the poster is advertising a homeopathy clinic and promoting homeopathy or homeopathic remedies to cure cancer as well as lots of other things, like HIV. And yes, this should be illegal. <laughs> I, I called the number um, because by just looking at the picture of it, it looked like maybe something that could have just been doctored up, you know, a hoax of something. Someone's playing a game with us, right? Nope, I called the number. It's a real place. <laughs> yep. Did you and tell me you have AIDS? fellow with a very heavy Indian accent ans- answered the phone. And I basically told him, I said, look, I'm just calling to make sure that you guys are who you are and that this is a legitimate phone number and you're, and you're promoting this. And they said yes. And I said, thank you. Goodbye. Wow. Yeah, oh, absolutely. These clinics exist. And again, a lot of people ask again, like, oh, what's the harm if somebody takes homeopathy to cure their headache and they say they feel better? But you know, these people never limit their claims to... The, the more benign things. That's always the foot in the door. They push their claims up to and often beyond what the law allows. But once they get you in their clutches, then you know, they'll sell you their worthless treatment for even life-threatening, serious, non-self-limiting diseases. Well, you know, cancer is arguably one of the worst diseases that mankind has to face, and they're saying that they can cure it. But then it's also things that, you know, a lot of people don't even think of. Um, I, I know that a big one here in the UK is um, diarrhea in children. There was a, a skeptic who went from pharmacy to pharmacy where they sold homeopathy and asked them, uh, he basically told them that his uh, child had been sick for several days with diarrhea and that he wanted something natural quote-unquote, something homeopathic, to treat it. And I think it was like one out of several um, pharmacists steered him away from the homeopathy. The rest all agreed to sell him uh, homeopathic remedies for uh, a child with diarrhea. And that's a very serious issue. Like, that kills children. Especially in third-world countries, you know, in in Africa, for example. 
That's a huge problem. And malaria is another one. Speaking of Africa, um, I, I posted on a video on Skeptic um, the other day. The Parliamentary Science and Technology Select Committee on Homeopathy met um, a few days ago, and a user on YouTube uploaded the entire session, and it's pretty fascinating um, because it involves skeptics like Ben Goldacre or um, Tracy Brown from Sense About Science up against the guys who are peddling, uh, making, and selling homeopathy, including um, a, a man was there representing Boots Pharmacy, which is a is a really big chain here, kind of like CVS or Rite Aid, and they sell homeopathy, and there's been a, a petition for them to stop selling it, but they continue to, and so this guy was there actually defending his sales of homeopathy. Uh, alongside people like Robert Wilson of the British Associ Association of Homeopathic Manufacturers um, and another person from a homeopathic hospital. And you read the transcript or, or watch the video and it's really fascinating because the chairman really sticks it to them. Um, right off the bat, he says, he asked the, the guy from Boots if homeopathy works. And he basically says, he starts saying um, that they sell them and they're there's consumer demand and the chairman says you know I didn't ask you about the demand I asked if they work beyond the placebo effect and he says I have no evidence before me to suggest that they are efficacious so that that occurs within the first two minutes is that he admits that there's absolutely no evidence but it was um, obvious from his replies that he doesn't care he doesn't care yeah, if it I mean, works or not he continued to go back to the argument that, well, a lot of people buy them, therefore the demand is there, therefore we should sell them. Mm -hmm. um, and completely dismissing any uh, problem with that, and particularly a problem with um, selling them while claiming that they work. Yeah. Near, near the end of this panel, um, they went around uh, and asked each person whether or not they thought that pharmacies should sell homeopathy. And when it got to Ben Goldacre... He said yes, but so long as they they make it known that the, those remedies do not work, sell them. But you have to be honest about the fact that there's no evidence for them, uh, which you know is a bit contentious for for skeptics, I think, in general. But well, that's Ben Ben's take. I mean, Ben kind of is kind of a, a libertarian when it comes to that. He doesn't think that we should pass regulations right. to keep people from having access to alternative medicine or, or things like this. He just thinks that you need to be 100% honest in the marketing. I think that's fair, although I, I do think that by nature of being a pharmacy that you automatically lend that credibility to the products you sell. Yeah, I love Ben, but I disagree with him strongly on that point. I think we do need to have a certain minimal regulation where, because as you say, people will assume that uh, because it is approved to be sold by the government or it's being sold in a large pharmacy chain, that that gives it legitimacy. I, I try to liken it to other areas where there's a major science involved with providing things for the public. My, you know, my favorite example is always like civil engineering or building bridges. We're going to say, oh, it's okay if we, we build unsafe bridges. You just got to put a sign up that says this is an unsafe bridge. Drive at your own risk. Right. No, I think right. actually we yeah. could have requirements to say, no, the bridge has to actually be safe for, for public mm -hmm. use. Yeah, I exactly totally agree right. with that, Absolutely. Steve. <laughs> you know, because the point is it's still adding noise into the into the yeah. whole process. You know, you could slow someone down from getting legitimate therapies 
and things that have been proven scientifically because they're they're taking homeopathic remedies. You know, they could easily waste two or three months, a year, taking that, and that's it. Their window of opportunity is gone. I, but I think my favorite part of at least that first chunk um, of dialogue between them was when <laughs> the chairman uh, was pressing him on the fact that the guy from Boots doesn't believe him uh, that you know homeopathy works. Wilson says. Uh, if these products did not work beyond the placebo effect, why do people keep buying them? And the chairman says, that was not a serious point, was it? Was that a <laughs> right. serious point you were making? <laughs> uh, awesome. <laughs> right. Because of the placebo effect? <laughs> it's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. Then I challenge my expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready? B. Ready. No, A. Red October Wait, standing no, C. by. Red October. C. D. I'm going to write D. Here we go. The above. Yes. <laughs> okay. Item number one. Engineers have developed a process using a strong magnetic field to cut through high-strength steel, for example, in car manufacturing. Item number two, a new study suggests that having a very clean environment as a child increases the risk of heart disease later in life. And item number three, a new position paper from the American Dietetic Association recommends a daily multivitamin for most Americans. Jay, go first. That first one about the engineers that developed a strong magnetic field to cut Steel, that is kick-ass cool. I really hope that that is science. That is very, very cool. And it seems totally possible. So, The second one about living in a clean environment increases the risk of heart disease. You know, Steve, we were very recently just talking about how it's actually healthy for us to be in a non-clean environment to a certain degree because it keeps our immune system active. And I wonder if that is related to, the, to that discussion that we had. If you're in a, an environment that's too clean, maybe later in life, because of an immune system deficiency, it could cause heart disease. That's interesting. And the last one, a uh, new Positron paper from the American Dietetic Association recommends a daily multivitamin for most Americans. That one is the fake. Okay, Rebecca? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you threw that in there. Just, I mean, uh, I mean, it definitely sounds like BS. Uh, because I think at this point it's pretty well known that most Americans have enough of a decent diet that they don't need to take a multivitamin. But then again, maybe we're eating really poorly these days. But the other thing is that magnet thing. I, I don't really I don't understand how that would work, and it seems really bizarre. Um, I do believe that living in a very clean environment as a child increases the risk of everything. I think that children should be rolled in dirt on a regular basis. So that one's true. I guess I'm I am going to have to go with Jay on this one. Multivitamins are BS, and I hope that the American Dietetic Association knows that. Okay, Evan? The American Dietetics Association sounds like a lobbying group to me. I, I, you know, I can't say I, I know them. All that well, right? Like the American Medical Association, yeah, big deal. What if so? A bunch of lobbyist doctors, you know, came up. It's kind of it kind of strikes me the same. So I don't know. I kind of think this one is true because 
I, I don't necessarily know that an association like this it would necessarily, you know, be entirely up on, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about uh, vitamin suppl- the supplement industry and so forth and how that's kind of gotten, you know, taken for, taken for granted. People, you know, oh, vitamins must be good, you know. No, not, re- not always. So I don't know if they're kind of caught up in that and therefore making the recommendation based on fad or fi- or fiction or, or or facts. Now this very clean environment one increase, increasing risk of heart disease later in life. I'm having a problem with the term very clean environment. I mean com- what are we comparing that to? I, I don't have a I don't have a frame a frame of reference, you know, the environments of children growing up are, are a spectrum like most most other things and where, where do you where do you draw the line between very clean and not very clean? So this that one's picture a me microchip odd. processing facility. The the first one about the magnetic field cutting high steel high strength steel, I think is uh, fascinatingly correct. So what the heck? I'm gonna I'm gonna go with my intuition and say that the very clean environment. One is the fiction. Dummy, only girls have intuition. <laughs> okay, Boys <Bob>. have logic. <laughs> I, um, well, here he goes. Let's see. I, I think the key, the key word in the first one with the magnetic field, it's not really necessarily a magnetic field cutting high-strength steel, but it's a process using strong magnetic field. And to me, that, that opens the door wide open to a lot of different possibilities off the top of your head, you think magnetic field, how's that going to cut high steel, high strength steel? But if it's part of a process, then yeah, I could see them coming up with something really funky to do that. So I don't have much of a problem with that one. Yeah, the clean environment, I'm pretty much on board with Rebecca and Jay. I just, yeah, if a, clean, a super clean environment or a very clean environment, as it's written here. Yeah, I could absolutely see how that could cause problems later on. Whether heart disease, that's kind of a – I think that might be a little bit of a new wrinkle, but inflammation and immune system, that one, I could buy that one too. And the, thir- the third one, of course, with the multivitamins, that goes against everything I've, I've read for years on this stuff, that, mul- that people don't need multivitamins. And, but I like what Evan said about the American Dietetic Association. What the hell does dietetic mean anyway? That – dietetic. I've been, <laughs> I've been staring at this word, and now I don't even know what the hell it is. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that that one is uh, probably I think it means fiction. relating to the diet, but that's just my yeah, guess. Yeah, but, uh, but in what context do you ever come across that anywhere else, dietetic? Your, your dietetic proclivities aren't very good. I mean, whatever. I knew a person once who had diatetes. Diatetes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. There is an American Diabetic Association, which is very confusing. Wilford Brimley. Yeah. Wilford Brimley has diatetes. So I'll, I'll take him in order. Actually, uh, he's you, got the diatetes. Oh, you all agree. <laughs> <laughs> or diatetes. You all agree that engineers have developed a process using a strong magnetic field to cut high-strength steel, for example, in car manufacturing. You all like that one. And that one is science. Yeah. And Bob, I, oh, I nice. disagree with you. I was toying with myself as to whether or not I was debating with myself whether or not to correct your interpretation of that sentence. It is using the magnetic field to cut the steel. The magnetic field is cutting the steel. Okay. Uh, So I I, I wasn't being funny that way. And yeah, that's obviously caught my eye. That's like, really? You can use a magnetic field? But that's exactly what they do. You weren't jerking Bob's chain? Is what you're saying. No, I was not jerking his chain. So uh, this is... (laughs) Were you pulling his leg? So are German engineers, and what they did is they used a coil 
that can produce a very powerful and focused magnetic field. And they power it with a, a capacitor that can obviously cre- give it a lot of energy very quickly, right? So a lot right. of power. And they were able to design it so that it can like cut out a hole from a sheet of of strong steel like you would use in car manufacturing. So the process takes only 200 milliseconds as opposed to using a laser, which would take (laughs) 1.4 seconds. So it's a lot quicker and also uh, more efficient. uh, uh, Yeah, it's probably more efficient. There's no like uh, melted metal dripping, I would think. Yes. In fact, it doesn't leave the burr that a laser does. so So it also eliminates the need for a finishing process. That's right, Bob. So how does a magnetic field do that, though? It's called a electromagnetic pulse technology. And basically by creating enough force that you know it overcomes the strength of the steel and punches out or cuts Damn. out a hole. Just wow. with wow. pure Ranges. force. It said the impact pressure on the steel is approximately 3,500 bar, which equates to the weight of Whoa. three small cars on a single fingernail. That's, so they're <laughs> able just to produce those incredible... Uh, forces on the steel. Itself. I don't believe that fingernails cannot hold that much weight. Yeah, very cool. Acrylic nails. So let's go on to the next one, number two. A new study suggests that having a very clean environment as a child increases the risk of heart disease later in life. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. The rest of you think this one is science, and That's this right. one is science. Yeah. Aha! Oh, that's, un- that's unfortunate. Suck it, clean kids. Yes. <laughs> so, Steve, was I right? Yes, indubitably. Excellent. So what's a very clean environment? Uh, well, as marked by fewer infections uh, as a child. And they're taking a, this is a study that was done using a cohort in the Philippines, piggybacking on a study from the early 1980s where they were following children every two months up until their, uh, they were two years of old and then every couple of years after that, and tracking <laughs> the number of infections that they get as well as later measuring the CRP or the C-reactive protein, which is Ooh, a yeah. measure of inflammation in the body. And what they found was a positive correlation between having a lot of infections as a child, more than, than is average or typical for a Western country, for example, with lower C-reactive protein, therefore low, less inflammation, just in general in the body, um, as an adult, and, and fewer heart attacks as well as lots of other diseases as adults. So it's still, this is sort of epidemiological and correlational. So in and of itself is not definitive evidence for a specific cause and effect here. But it does uh, add to the evidence that children need to be exposed to organisms, to challenges to their immune system on a regular basis, and it helps their immune system mature and function better. Uh, and therefore, as an adult, their immune systems will be behaving. There'll be less inflammation and in their bodies. And th- that inflammation is linked to th- things like heart disease. I'll tell you what a very clean environment is, because I know. I worked in an office where there were a bunch of women, and they would periodically <laughs> get pregnant. And so then they would pop out their little babies, and then they would bring them in and you know try to show them off as if you know we care. And uh, they, wow. people would go to like, well, no, really, seriously, it's a baby. It looks like every other baby. But anyway, um, people would go to like, I don't know, pet the baby or whatever, or like hold the baby. And um, 
they <laughs> like the certain subset of women would have a little bottle of purell or something and they would like freak out and say wait did you did you purell first no <laughs> is your baby in a clean room is it putting together microprocessors that's a verb now did you purell Interesting. yes yeah which you know is is probably the least of their crimes uh is verbing a noun right that has no right to be <laughs> verbed like like verbing shut up <laughs> <laughs> obviously so the saying? situation required that verb now, wait, th- nobody's suggesting, though, that we go out and have these Jenny McCarthy smallpox parties for their kids, no, right? No, no, no. So, yeah, then you can actually even tie this into the whole vaccine thing. It makes sense. Our immune systems are very dynamic organs, and they do require um, ch- challenges to remain active. And that's also how they learn what kind of thing infection infectious organisms are out there you know they sort of build immunity against the environment in which they're embedded and that's that's the situation in which we evolved that's you know again the way our our immune systems work and the, uh, being obsessed with being sterile and and uh, and clean can have a detriment to our immune systems there are some theories that it may be linked to the rise in uh, asthma for example plus the amount of antigens that you're being exposed to by the vaccine schedule is negligible compared to the amount of antigens we're being exposed to in everyday life, just walking around, breathing the air, licking the floor as kids will do, Whoa, putting anything, putting stuff. You want to talk about kids, they will put everything into their mouth. And why uh, is that? Well, that's a good question. Maybe it's not a coincidence that little kids love to put everything and anything into their mouth. Maybe that behavior was reinforced way. because it's a way of routinely challenging their immune systems, right? Rebecca, what did you say? <laughs> Said Jay, it's the same way. <laughs> I do it. I, yes, I do it on purpose. Which means that a new position paper from the American Dietetic Association recommends a daily multivitamin for most Americans is. Thankfully, fiction. Wilfred Brimley does have the dietitis, though. That was fact. Is that right? That was science. Because in an updated position paper on nutrient supplementation released by the American Dietetic Association today, December 9th, they, in fact, do (laughs) not recommend any supplementation routinely for Americans. They say that the best way to get uh, all the nutrients you need... Fruits and vegetables. ...is to have... A, a good, varied diet, a nutritious yep. diet. Word. So you shouldn't eat cereal three times a day, right? Oh, cereal is actually really good cereal's for you. probably pretty if good. You pick the right cereal. Just don't live on cereal. You know, you need other things. Well, a lot of cereals are fortified. So if you get a good one without a lot of sugar. Throw a little fresh fruit in that cereal. Strawberry, banana. No, I can't put fruit in Reese's Puffs. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> sure you can. <laughs> Cookie of crisp course. is a fruit, right? <laughs> what about me, Lucky Charms? Your diet has to be like like the uh, that king in the Bugs Bunny cartoon. Every day, it's the same thing. Variety. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I forgot about that right. one. Was, king wait, is from that Bugs like from Bunny. The, is that from the thirties or something? Same. It's from Bugs Bunny. That's, that's from your day, right? Yeah, from my day. Bugs Bunny, so then yes, he decided that, that he wanted to have Hassenpfeffer made from rabbit, which of course put him at odds with Bugs Bunny. Well, he's not going to get Hassan Pfeffer made from anything else, is he? The story pretty much writes itself from that point forward. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of explosions and dropping anvils. So congratulations, everyone but Evan. Uh, Thank you. 
<laughs> what a, what a well said. done. What about it? But Evan, as a consolation, Evan, you get to tell us about last week's Who's That Noise? Excellent. I'm very happy to do so. And here she is. So he was sure he was able to identify the craft and started walking towards it. And as he did, the craft shifted out over the field. That was the incomparable... The, the unmistakable, the ever-entertaining Betty Hill. Betty Hill of Betty and Barney Hill fame. Absolutely. Not Fanny Hill. Oh. Not Benny. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang fame. No. Mm. Betty That's Hill much and Barney Hill. A uh, New Hampshire couple back in the, back in the 60s couple driving along one night, late at night, middle of the road, big bright light hovering above them. They had no idea what it was. They claim that that was an alien, that it landed in front of their car as they were driving. They were forced to stop. They got out of their car to investigate. The rest of the night was kind of a blur and a haze as far as what happened. But under hypnosis, up, under hypnosis mm. they were able to reveal... That they were abducted by aliens, experimentations, and tests were done. It, it was the first case. It basically kicked off the alien abduction craze. It was 1961, by the way. And although the, the sequence of events that you laid out, Evan, is what they later came to claim, it's worth pointing out that at, at first they, they arrived home and nothing was amiss. I mean, they didn't, it was really just it was a late night, long drive through the country. It was only after Barney Hill became fascinated with the whole UFO thing from watching it on television that he began to think back about that night and say, and then come up with things like, oh, well, you know, there was quote unquote missing time. You know, it was later when we got home than we thought it should have been. So, what happened to that missing time during that trip? And, didn't, and then, what about that light we saw in the sky? It turned out to be it was probably the moon just following them, you know, through the trees, uh, or you know, something astronomical. And then he became increasingly convinced that they were abducted. And, and then all the other details came out under hypnosis. However, our friend Chu. C-H-E-W, from the message boards, was the first one to guess correctly. Congratulations, Good Chewy. Job, Chewy. I've just named, nicknamed you Chewy. So I hope... Actually, Chew's his last name. His first name is Hatch. That's clever. I see what you did there. <laughs> oh, my God. Was, is that what we stupid? I thought it was Fu Man. <laughs> Fu Man? Maybe his first name is Chew and his last name is Chew. <laughs> right. Funny, he doesn't look Chew. Or his last name is Baca. Maybe his first name is Sephardic. <laughs> nice. Well, Evan, what do you got for us this week? Well, this week, it's not a voice. So, let's give a listen. Okay. Very nice. There you have it. Thank you, Evan. Jay. Hi, Steve. Hi, hi. Hi. I have a quote. And tonight is unique because I know the name of the person who said the quote, and I can mm-hmm. find zero reference to them on what? the internet. Don't know who the person is other are you than kidding? their name. Jay, are you kidding me? Linda You've got to know who Linda Rose is, first of all. 
Uh, wait, that's the girl who did the test on That's the, Emily uh, Rosa. Emily Rosa. Linda's her mo- is the Do mother. Do you actually know how to use the internet, Jay? I d- look, I... <laughs> You were just searching like in a special porn Google, weren't you? And nothing came up. <laughs> I, looked, I, looked, I was looking on slut load. I didn't find her on. <laughs> you were looking on Splugel. Nice. <laughs> oh, no, that is not a website. Is she the mother yes. of Emily? She's the mother yes. of Emily Rosa. She is a nurse in Colorado who is very active in the skeptical movement and in the um, anti-alternative Anti-T-T. medicine movement. And she and her husband, Larry Sarner, just recently... Uh, with me and a bunch of other people founded the Institute for Science and Medicine. But it's really Linda and Larry that are doing all the heavy lifting, okay. that they're doing all the administrative work. And then they, they, they brought together like the 40 physicians, myself included, to form this institute. And they're working their butts off trying to fight the infiltration of nonsense and pseudoscience into medicine. That's who Linda so Rosa is. So I hope is. you remembered all but that. Other than Jim. that, we have no idea who Linda Rosa is. Okay. Okay, here we go. Science makes a lousy religion and religion makes a lousy science. Linda Rosa. I love that quote. quote. I love it. It's good. Solid. That quote loves you, you too. Linda Rosa? Jay? Linda Rosa is Emily Rosa's mother. And should we say who Emily Rosa is? Emily Rosa is the 11-year-old girl who did the study on therapeutic touch and got published in Jam. But while she was 11, I think she was 13 when it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, she was on – she was briefly um, on one of the uh, bullshit episodes. Yes. Yes. All yes. grown up. Yes, that's correct. Oh, yeah. All right, well, good job, Jay. Nice job. <laughs> We're doing our end-of-the-year show next week. Don't forget, everybody, if you have any requests or any votes for your, your favorite or least favorite segment or person or news item or whatever, if you've tabulated any statistics, yeah, the worst pseudoscientist, the best skeptic, send us your votes for people you want us to talk about the year in review. In fact, we can do a decade in review at the true. end of the best decade. Best dressed. Oh, my gosh. Um, Whoa. Oh, we need a longer uh, show. I don't Most likely to, to succeed. Oh, my. And there is also a forum thread where you can give us your feedback for the year in review under messages from the panel. Uh, Mike LaSalle put up a post, so you can give us all of your feedback for the end of the year review there. And there's still time to go to Cafe Press and buy those skeptically-themed Christmas gifts or holiday gifts. Go to the store, the SGU store. You can see it on the top there. And uh, you can buy uncut episodes and SGU swag from Cafe Press. Yay, swag. Well, thank you all for joining me again this week. Thank you, Steve. Surely. Thanks. I'm getting you all SGU swag for Christmas. Awesome. You're going to love it. Awesome. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.